0: Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? This is episode 196 of the Howie Games Part A, featuring one of the most recognisable faces in the history of Australian swimming, dual Olympic gold medalist and multiple world champion, Michael Klim. It's going to be Michael
1: Klim, another
0: gold medal. I talked about a cult status. In he goes, Michael Klim, decisively. Klimi is an absolute beauty. One of those chaps you see around the traps in an interview situation or just in passing, always really friendly, positive, motivated, a real quality person, however, In recent years, Michael has been tested more than he ever was in the pool by a rare neurological disorder that has, amongst other things, robbed him of the ability to walk unassisted. To help raise awareness, Klimi is an Australian Red Cross Lifeblood ambassador. Michael is one of thousands of Australians who will rely on the generosity of plasma donors. Lifeblood is inviting new and existing plasma donors to join Klim's Lifeblood team, Klim's Champions, on the Lifeblood team's website to help ensure continued levels of plasma, meet the growing needs of Australian patients. You can help by jumping on lifeblood.com.au. There is more information on the show notes. Alrighty, let's get into the story of Michael George Klim OAM, a man with a really big heart. So when you search and then you find
1: and know just where to go and thoughts that once used to cloud your mind,
2: you see clearly and now you know, mystery. What is to be revealed In King Selassie Come on children Trod with me We want to reach Mount Zion
0: Well, this man Got one of the most recognisable nude nuts in Australian sport. He's an Olympic champion. He's also here as an Australian Red Cross (laughs) Lifeblood ambassador. He looks no different. His name is Michael Klim. Unfortunately, he's in Sydney. I'm in Melbourne. But it's good to see you, mate. How are you going?
2: I'm great, thanks, Howie. Thanks for having me. Congrats on the show. Thank you,
0: mate. Um, You were just saying to me, um, this will have happened after this comes up, but you're off to a, a wedding of a Howie Games alumni tomorrow.
2: Yeah, Daniel Kowalski, a dear friend of mine, is getting married tomorrow, so uh, yeah, really looking forward to it. He's a, he's a great mate. He was actually my, my first ever roomie um, on the Australian swim team, so we go back a long, long way.
0: What was it like uh, back in the day We you didn't get your own hotel room Yes, so you actually had to room with other people, yeah?
2: Oh absolutely and and still to this day you know and I um, I remember finishing my year 12 exam and jumping on the plane and meeting the the rest of the Australian swimming team in in a staging camp in Miami and instead of going to schoolies I had to go and meet the Aussie swim team and Daniel kind of met me in the room with a couple of pizzas and a couple of bottles of coke so that was my <laughs> that was the extent of my schoolies week
0: <laughs> Well I hope you had an absolutely fantastic wedding Hey mate you're living in um you're living in Indonesia you live in Bali and yeah. You know we see not not particularly with you but we see Instagram and there's this, there's paradise what what is it actually like living full time as a Aussie in Bali mate
2: Yeah oh for me it's been great I've obviously been there over a decade now and I've got three kids that have grown up there and gone to school and um, now we've started Klim Swim with the Klim swim Academy. So we're obviously teaching kids how to swim and we've got elite swimmers as well training there. So I think there's a big difference between living there and coming and holidaying. Yeah. So um, we, you know, we're probably spoiled in a sense that we can go to a beach club and have a, you know, have a sunset and <laughs> whenever we like, but it's, uh, yeah, I think it's a good blend of, uh, you know, the right amount of expats as well as tourists and, um, yeah, I think it, it's, it's booming, actually. Bali sort of, uh, it's got a very good vibe at the moment.
0: It's a beautiful place. Who are you teaching to swim, mate? Who's your typical attendee to Klim Swim?
2: We've mainly actually, uh, mainly the expat community, but we do have a few locals as well. But any, anything from, from babies six months onwards to, uh, we've got a couple uh, swimmers that are actually swimming for the Indonesian team as well. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a really good sort of diverse community, but we also teach at the Australian Independent School, which is uh, also very diverse, all different nationalities of kids. So, um, yeah, gone back full circle, back to something that I really love doing.
0: It's a, it's, a, it's an interesting space to be in, especially, you know, you're, you're living on an island surrounded by water. I, I live on the coast here in Bowen Heads. And yeah. You know, you have the swim between the flags and, and the water safety, but it's it's such an important thing. We, we lost a twelve-year-old local girl last week uh, in mm. the surf at home. Um, it's such an important skill for people to have to be able to get themselves out of
2: trouble. Absolutely, and it's and it's sadly it's a stat that continues to rise, and um, and it's hundred percent preventable. It's it's just you know enrolling kids into learn to swim early teaching them water safety skills, just some information and awareness about where to swim, how to identify ribs, uh, making sure they never swim alone, just taking some precautions. Parents can also learn CPR, making sure they, you know, kids are swimming mm-hmm. safely as well, not they're not spending their time on their phone. The amount of times I've seen kids being in trouble while their parents are scrolling on their phone or the beach club, it's, yeah. it's not funny. So, um, and then in the community like Indonesia, where drownings are tenfold, actually ten times worse than Australia. Really? Um, just there's no education, no programs, no systems. So, yeah, for me it's uh, yeah it's something close to my heart. Obviously, you know, I've grown up around the pool, and I was two years of age when I learned to swim, and I was very sort of capable from that point onwards. But um, it's something that yeah we can definitely prevent, and it's probably our responsibility to do so
0: do you enjoy the business side of life? You're, I, know, I know you're not in it anymore, but you, you had Milk, the skincare a, a brand, obviously uh, work because you still look about 32. So I don't know if you're still slapping it on, but uh, obviously you're, you're a proof. Forever
2: 33, the, my partner says, right, Michelle, she's b- like, yeah. forever 33. Yeah. Well, it must have been
0: the, the, but that, but like, that was a big deal as well, business-wise.
2: Absolutely, I you know I was involved with Milk for over 13 years, and I learned so much on that you know working with in growing the company to start with, and then within the company. But um, yeah, I guess you know COVID put a lot of stops to and changes Mm. to a lot of the (laughs) my direction, and very you know that word coming up again in terms of uh, pivoting and finding my new sort of paradigm. In a sense that you know for me, my health became the priority, and. Um, and yeah, I sort of, you know, as I said, went back full circle, working with Swimming Victoria on, on the Youth Pathway Program, working with Fairbank Grammar as well in Melbourne and consulting there with their program. So and running a bunch of swim camps and clinics. And um, it's bizarre how, you know, you can never expect what's going to be around the corner. And for me, swimming has been something that it has drawn me back into it. But uh, health and wellness is something that I'm passionate about because I've had to really draw upon that in the last couple of years with my condition mm. but the world of business which I was so engrossed in for a while has definitely set me up on being able to you know start a foundation and you know help you know help sort of like lifeblood like I am at the moment and just being able to communicate different messages and yeah which I'm really passionate about.
0: We mentioned that you're here on on behalf of the Australian Red Cross. Uh, Lifeblood Operation, um, October, International Plasma Awareness Week, which we will talk about and we'll talk about the the issues you're dealing with with your health. But Mm. looking at you from 800 kilometers away, and I don't say this lightly, (laughs) mate, you obviously still um, do everything you can to keep fit within the parameters of what you're able to do because I'm looking at your arms here, they take up half the bloody screen, (laughs) Like You're obviously still um, really keeping fit, mate
2: yeah so howie, i sort of went through a bit of a transformative period probably two years ago i was very very down and <clears throat> sort of uh i was pretty much give i sort of gave up on you know where this disorder was going to take me and and i and and i felt that i couldn't do anything about it it is very debilitating when when you're willing yourself to do something physically and your body's just not not responding so um yeah i wasn't i sort of gave up lost motivation to exercise my mindset wasn't there and you know through the help of you know people around me my family my partner i I managed to turn that around but it's a catch-22 where physical activity is actually something that's restorative and Mm -hmm. can help healing and obviously it's very important for mental health and and I wasn't really doing that. The things that sort of set me up as an athlete for years and years, I sort of uh, neglected. And all those tools that I learned, I wasn't really applying into everyday life. But now I sort of, uh, I'm back to that same kind of, I tried to approach an elite sort of athlete mindset to everyday life in the sense that I, you know, I get up really early, I try to have, you know, morning movement and exercise, meditate when I can, I eat mainly carnival kind of diet. Mm. Um, Head of ice ice baths when I uh, you know probably daily now so um, since I got one at home which is great but um, yeah so really sort of prioritise you know my health in the sense that you know I look after myself and that that actually gives I think people around me a much ver- better version of myself in the sense that I've got more energy I'm, I'm more productive I'm I'm, I'm more present etc so there's been a massive shift in in my psychology in the last couple of years. And I think everyone from my kids, my partner, and including myself have benefited. We'll talk about
0: CIDP in detail and what it is and how you've dealt with it and how you've dealt with it physically and mentally as we go along. But mate, firstly, um, you know, incredible swimming career um, Hall of Fame, you know, you're listed as the greatest relay swimmer on the history of the planet. Um, but where, where did this I, I thi- think
2: I might've called myself that <laughs> and it just stuck. I, think I don't know you, who did that. <laughs> that's, you, that's you editing
0: your own wiki page, Klimi, but yeah, it's, it's right. certainly <laughs> stuck. But mate, this journey of yours, a lot of people won't realise as recognisable as you are, it did not start in Australia.
2: No, it didn't. I, I, as you know, kind of, uh, I learned to swim in a very similar environment that my kids are living in. At the moment. I was a uh, very much an expat kid living in India. My dad was working for the Polish consulate. And and yeah, I spent four years, five years nearly living in Bombay from the age of one to about five or six. So yeah, I sort of had a very different upbringing. We were very transient. We moved around a lot. Uh, went back to Poland, Germany, Canada, and eventually at the age of 11, ended up landing in Australia. Huh. Actually, the, <laughs> we checked into a a motel in, in Elwood while we were getting re- waiting for our house to to get ready. I, I can't remember the details, but uh, I saw this weird sport with guys were running around wearing singlets and <laughs> bouncing this kicking this weird shaped football around. So um, I was kind of fascinated about <laughs> AFL from from day one and I couldn't kind of work it out. But um I moved uh, we moved into a house off South Road in Morabin and I um I became a Saints supporter from uh, from a very early on. <laughs> um, couldn't work out why all these guys were and and you know everyone was heading down to to uh, to Lynton Oval at, at the time and watch old Plugger kicking all the <laughs> goals. So I um yeah I became a pretty much a passionate Saints supporter very early on.
0: So so born in Poland, but you said India and Germany, but you came to Australia as an eleven-year-old. What what give me one definitive memory in your mind of living somewhere overseas, something that sticks in your mind, whether it be Poland or or, or Canada. I didn't know you'd been to Canada or, or India as a young fella.
2: Yeah. Look, I think for me, obviously, my roots being Polish and, I remember having really sort of festive, for us, Christmas is very, we call it Vigilia, which is sort of a very festive family kind of uh, occasion. And it's it's a white Christmas, so uh, predominantly it's, you know, <laughs> there's snow everywhere and family comes from all around the place and the slightly different cuisines so with pickled herring and pierogi Ooh. and different sort of things like that. Wait, so, what's pierogi? Um, Uragi kind of like a Polish dumpling, um, so yeah, they're kind of nice. Where look, we we tend to either pickle everything or fry everything. But um, <laughs> it's amazing but, uh, <laughs> you look like you do, Clivey. <laughs> yeah, I don't eat much Polish food anymore, but uh, yeah. So I think for me, uh, growing up, I had a You know, I was very fortunate that mum and dad did everything possible. For us to have a, a great childhood, hence probably leaving just before the the uh, <laughs> the communist regime fell over. Yeah, absolutely. probably bad timing. <laughs> so, so
0: um, oh, that was old uh, Lech Valencia and the the shipyards and all that type exactly. of caper, wasn't it? So, yeah. Um, what 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 did you folks do that you were on the move so much?
2: Initially, Dad was working for the Polish consulate, so okay. he was working as a trade attaché. I don't know what that means. Is that but, another uh, word for a
0: spy, Clemmy, or no? Yeah, he was I actually think so, okay. and he never
2: described to me what he would have, what he was doing. Right. I kind of left it as that.
0: Okay. <laughs> so, so you come to Australia, and you, you mention footy. What, what are your other early memories of this very foreign country?
2: Yeah, f- what I must say is when I first sort of came, and my sister Anna was a uh, uh, always a very sort of dedicated tennis player and she won won the australian nationals at the age of 16 and was and was was selected to uh, for the vis very early on and we'd always go to the national tennis center and she was training there with john mccurdy and peter mcnamara and um some great tennis players there and so for me my early <laughs> my early days at, at in Australia, was basically following her around to a lot of tournaments, and uh, would go to Bendigo and Ballarat or everywhere. So I was the annoying little brother that um, would just, you know, uh, be trying to serve in, the, in an empty court somewhere in the background. But um, so yeah, I think for and spending a lot of time at National Tennis Centre, and actually I went to I end up because of that reason. We were, you know, Anna was training down the road, and there was the Batman Avenue, the State Swimming Centre there, which doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. It's Fed Square. Um, The pool sank, whatever whatever that means. It was kind of sinking in the ground. But um, that was my first sort of experience with swimming in Australia. I signed up to the Melbourne Vixen Swimming Club and Gene Jackson was my first coach. But uh, I think for me, that was kind of the thing that made everything more familiar and comfortable was was you know signing up to a swimming club and you know following Anna and and being around sport and that sort of you know continued for years and years after that
0: and what was it about swimming that grabbed you as a young like klimi
2: Look, I think obviously as a kid, you know, when you're better, uh, when you're good at something or better than others, you sort of tend to gravitate to that. And I was always, you know, the, the odd one out, you know, always, if we were traveling, I either didn't speak the language or I looked differently or whatever. So I think, you know, I I definitely found sort of a bit of solace in, in the familiarity of swimming and being in that sort of environment of swimming clubs and, um, that sort of fraternity is is was very familiar to me. so, and people don't tend to talk to you with your head under water, so I could just <laughs> <laughs> go get go, go on, get on with my thing. I ended up being that one of one of those real annoying kids that would would uh, tap other people on their feet. and um, yeah, I sort of and I look, I, for whatever reason I had a drive. People always ask me, where did this drive come from? And you know how did you sort of continue training? So, so many times a week and you never stopped, etc. And And I, I don't know. It's, it's sort of a, a uh, as a kid, you just, when you have a passion for something, you just do it and no one tells you to do it. So um, yeah, I loved it from, from the word get-go, I reckon.
0: And at what age were you a standout? Like did, immediately as you started, were you super fast or how old were you when it was like, wow, this, this kid is he's, he's above what everyone else is doing?
2: I was fortunate enough that my first age nationals, not my first, my second actually, when I was 13, I won seven medals, and, and most of them were gold, and so I was a successful nas- age national swimmer, but uh, I think that there is many successful age swimmers that don't make it through to the yeah. open ranks, and um, I think for me that the realization that I had an opportunity to go to the next level was probably when I was invited to try out at the Institute of Sport with Gennady Turetsky and Alex Popov and so that was around sort of 15 16 so that was sort of but prior to that there was a lot of work that I put in to get to that stage and um I was I was probably you know I was I was successful junior but again you don't count sort of uh those sort of, you know, those days. Uh, for me, it sort of really sunk in once I once I got invited to go to Canberra. I swam with the, some of the greats and, you know, that time Nicole Livingston or Stevenson was was uh, training there and Patria Thomas and there was such an amazing sort of group of athletes. And, um, you know, I lived, ended up living in Canberra for over eight years. So that became my, my home. Moved out of home when I was 16. Um, my mum wasn't too happy about that, but... Uh, um, yeah that was a, I think that was the moment where a lot of things changed in my swimming career
0: Gina Cole's kicked on hasn't she now she's the in charge of the AFLW
2: yeah. and she's doing some amazing things in sport but
0: you, you mentioned your, your your parents now that you've got kids you don't understand it at the time and I try and tell my kids <laughs> this but like the commitment they must have had because swimming's not normally a sort of midday style operation Klimmy. you know we we all yeah, know swimmers yeah. get up crazy early, uh, uh, crazy early to to do what they need to do
2: yeah and Look, I think it's, and it's such a fine balance now being, being a parent, but also coaching and seeing um, swimming parents sort of behind me <laughs> that come and watch and support their kids. There is certainly a, a massive level of commitment, but not just the physical one where you have to take them to the pool and bring them back and prepare meals, et cetera, but it is this almost this supportive kind of emotional support that they need throughout this whole journey. And um, I was very fortunate that my parents were supportive without being pushy they could see that both my sister and I had this kind of ambition and drive and finding that balance of support and encouragement without being too forceful is is a very fine line because sometimes you you know kids need that extra encouragement or that extra push but not not so much that they're going to be turned off the off their sports so um but yeah it's it's a huge commitment and I see um so many parents and dads that come and sit there and do their work on the laptops Mm. or have a bit of a nap first thing in the morning but um you know they they get up at five o'clock and they get the kids to the pool they prepare their snacks it's it's just a um so that's why you know people say oh everyone says oh swimming's an individual sport but i think because we're still fairly amateur when it comes to when we get to the Olympic Games, you sort of acknowledge that the people that got you there were, were the, the, the swimming club community, were the parents, were the, the, the club barbecues that raise money to, to get your team uniform so you, could go and tra- or, you know, go and travel, et cetera. So, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's, you know, it does have those really strong family roots about swimming, which, which I really enjoy as well.
0: And did you find it a challenge moving out of home as a 16-year-old or were you just, I want to swim, this is what's happening?
2: yeah that definitely for me wasn't uh, I wasn't sort of put off by it. i I wasn't too homesick. I definitely was so determined that I wanted to try and make this that work. and that environment kind of suited me quite well. i as a kid, I was comfortable being alone, so it sort of being I guess being a migrant kid, so I had some time alone and but traveling in you know as a part, as part of the team, I sort of got to experience even a completely different sort of world than as an elite athlete but um yeah I had I think I had a good balance where mum and dad would come and still visit regularly but um I was amongst people that were all, all on the on the same mission you know where for us obviously at that point already Sydney got, got the games and whoever was close enough to making it it was all systems go
0: 1995 was your first Australian team
2: yeah, first Australian team. So that's the one that sort of uh, I was just, um, you know, straight out of school and and trying to sort of, uh, yeah, make, make make some kind of ways. But I, I managed to, to, you know, win trials that year and in the 200 free, but I still was, you know, had nowhere near, um, I think, the ability or had consolidated kind of my... Um, you know, my trajectory into into the sport and ninety six was a huge wake up call, missing the grand uh, grand final, the final of the Olympics and um and then having to completely reshape my my swimming career and developing that straight arm stroke and swimming underwater, working with the with Speedo on the suit development, et cetera. So um ninety six was a massive transformative year and um kind of the rest is a little bit of history. You talk
0: about the straight arm. Stroke, and you know, I've been privileged enough to see you swim live a lot, and eventually everybody was swimming the way you were swimming. But des- describe how you changed swimming and who changed it with you.
2: So, initially, when I first moved to Canberra, I was you know, not many athletes get a chance to swim with their heroes and you know, someone they're trying to emulate. And I had a six foot eight Russian, you know, the, the czar of sprint that swam with the most economical stroke you can imagine. And everyone wanted to swim like him. This and is Popov, yeah? Popov, yeah. Popov, so, Popov. Um, pop and Popov, that economical style. Um, and, you know, I tried and uh, swam with with a, you know, classical bent arm recovery in 95, 96. And, but unfortunately, I, I, I worked out that under pressure and under those sort of circumstances where, you know, you're physically and 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 emotionally tested. I sort of I couldn't hold that up. So I, I, you know, I wasn't six foot eight, but um, but developed a more kind of athletic kind of stroke that was um, suited me, suited my sort of my makeup, and um, it gave me a little bit more inertia, and it probably was more stable under pressure as well. So, um, Gennady and I we were practicing that as as a drill, um, to sort of to help me with my, with my just recovery and my rhythm and, um, well, I was doing really good times with, with straight arm swimming just as a drill. So we just decided that I think we're just going to stick to it because it is, um, it's more reliable and it suits me better. And, um, yeah. And I think after that, we sort of worked on the underwater part and, um, started working with the suits. So it was, yeah, it was something I think most athletes, it was a great lesson because it, it just proves that you have to find whatever works for yourself. You can't just copy someone else. It's,
0: How was it received, Klimi, when you started pulling this out in in international events? Like you got to um 1998 Worlds in Perth where you yep. dominated seven medals from seven events. But was there resistance to what you were doing at the start from other sort of people in the coaching and swimming fraternity?
2: Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think change in, in our sport I think now it's looked upon quite differently, but previously, you know, it it takes time for things to get adopted or the way, the way simmers look at things. So I, I didn't really have to explain myself to anyone and most people were kind of a bit resistant to, to change. So, um, I was very fortunate. If anything, I kind of felt like I had a bit of a trump card up my sleeve and I could, you know, I, I was obviously swimming well, and I didn't sort of share too much about it. Um, you know, biomechanically underwater, I was very similar to everyone else. I was just above water, that you know, visually everyone thought I was just thrashing, thrashing my arms over, and yeah. um, the perception was that it would you know cause so much stress on your shoulders and fatigue. But um, it was it was pre- actually, if anything, more relaxing, and uh, my recovery wasn't as kind of as exhausting. So. Um, yeah, I think it initially it was received quite, <laughs> quite interestingly, but if you look at probably the, the 50 freestyle final at the, at the recent World Championships, yeah. six out of the eight swimmers were swimming with straight arms. So um, something must have stuck along the way. <laughs>
0: Back to Climmy shortly. Plenty more episodes of the Howie Games coming your way. But next Tuesday, good news because we fire up the third instalment of the Howie Games Artist Series. And have we got some guests for you, including the only Australian male artist to achieve six number one singles who is absolutely obsessed with cricket, also a man of culture a TV star and an old-school, I'm talking old-school rock and roller, heavy, sweaty, pub-style operations. Just to get you going, it all kicks off again next Tuesday, October 31. Well, that's this, how this
2: I was is seeing Brian it.
0: 153
2: whole not out. <laughs> 153 not out. Heaven's above, man. It was so good. Cool. 153 f- not out. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was, that's my highest
0: score. I judged the world cocktail champs in Mexico City a few years back, and one of the problems is so many of
1: them
2: are super sweet. So you get really the palate gets tired Ooh, from all the you sugar. You went to
0: Mexico to, to judge the world cocktail championships. Because, because this, come this, on, that's not a job. This, that, no, I know it's not a job. <laughs> and you just go into rolling coverage, and you're just talking for five, six hours on the run, and that is the greatest buzz.
1: The stories that you get told, if you spend a bit of time
2: with people, and they tell you what your music has meant to them, it's really rewarding. Makes you think, gosh, this means something. This is actually not just entertainment. It's actually, you know, food for the soul.
0: That is the Howie Games Artist Series returning to your earballs next Tuesday. Let's get back to Michael. We, we mentioned those world champs in Perth. So you won the 200 free, the 100 fly, the 4x200 free, and the 4x100 medley. It's going to be
1: Michael Clem. Another gold medal. I talked about it at pulse status. In he goes, Michael Clem. Decisively. Magnificent victory. Rolls for Jet Eagles. Crowland is second, Hugel gets third, and the time 52.25. A mighty swim, 52.2, just a tenth of a second outside his
0: world record. So 1999, 100 metre butterfly world record, you broke it twice. So you you are the man. Tell me about your memories, not of events at this point, but at the pressure, like we've heard Cathy Freeman talk about Mm. the pressure of the Sydney Olympics coming in as, as a pretty hot favorite in various events, what was the pressure like for you as a kid, hoping to live out your Olympic
2: dreams in a home games? Yeah, good question, Howie, because I don't think I did myself any favors by, by, by uh, sticking my head on the ticket book, which had about 9 million copies that went around to every household in yeah. Australia. Um, I was on the front page of the one year to go, um, pretty much every, every paper around the country and... Um, and look, I think there was there was certainly a lot of pressure, but as an expe- it's more pro- probably expectation from not just not just I guess ourselves, but everyone around us. You know, the, I think the the momentum for the games built well and truly more than two or three years prior to the game. So um, yeah, I think we we're under a bit of scrutiny, and I think Canberra played a really good role in the sense that we could hide away a little bit, and we travelled a lot around the world to. You know, I competed probably more than anyone else, so I was on the road a lot. But um, whenever we came home, it was this, you know, this kind of anticipation, everyone was wanted to talk about it, and it was, yeah, and I think obviously being a world record holder, ranked number one in the world, the sort of, uh, you know, you, you, I wasn't, <laughs> I'd overthink a lot, and probably for me, that wasn't a great thing. So um, I tried to find ways to sort of not, not think about the outcome and just think about the process which is easier said than done mm. <laughs> when every second person wants to talk about what sydney is going to be like but um yeah i think ultimately i found a way to to go about it i was very process driven and just got my head down and um and i prided myself on probably doing more work than necessary but that sort of kept me on the straight and narrow and very sort of routine based and i think those Distractions and those sort of things that can put you off your game. If you stick to your plan, it's, uh, sometimes you can overcome it. The four by one hundred relay. Yeah,
0: yeah. So it, it's it's one of the most famous swimming events in the history of Australia, and you let it off, Clem. Michael
1: Clem is going out hard. Michael Clem, the early leader, is out by about half a body length already. Irvin trying to go with him, the American speedster, as they come down to complete the opening fifty. He is on world record pace, twenty-two point eight three. World record pace is twenty-two point three three. Michael Klim is
2: going for it. You want a message? Here's one. Michael Klim. Yeah, yeah it Was it that was certainly, you know, if we if we look at if sporting events that had it all, that I think that's that did have it all. It obviously had the build-up with the drama with the Americans and um, obviously the headlines and Gary Hall who sort of brought the attention to the event, which is amazing at doing we had the obviously Aussies being the underdogs we were sort of assorted this team that you know we weren't all 100 meter specialists we had a rookie in Ashley Colors, um a, a veteran in Chris Fiedler a unknown quantity at the time Ian Thorpe in 100 meters he you know didn't even finish in the top four at the trial so um we didn't know what to expect I was ranked num- number three in the world at the time so um yeah the it was definitely a a bit of an unknown quantity so so Gar- um, Gary
0: Hall famously came out and said they're going to smash yeah. you like bike smash you like guitars didn't they yep. so it was, yeah, a, it was
2: a great it, it, builder. <laughs> yeah absolutely and just to paint the picture the Americans had never lost that event and he had said, you know probably had the right to to, to say what he did and uh, since the inception of the event they've never lost so um on home soil we were the first Oh, first relay on the first night, um, so we kind of took it upon ourselves to try and try and knock them off their the pedestal, which um, is easier said than done. But the only way potentially that we could have done that is by throwing them off their game. If you watch any four x one freestyle relay, it's very hard to come over the top of anyone, and it's because you that's kind of the the fastest moving relay that you have on the program. So swimming over the top of someone at that speed is really tough and. Um and you know we famously you know, were able to back end all of our all, all of our splits except for myself I was uh you know I was happy to pull out a world record and to this day it's the best I've ever felt in the swimming pool the clearest clear minded I've ever been so it was almost just this automatic kind of thing that went off but so
0: so what Michael's saying is he broke the one hundred meter freestyle world record. In the first leg of the relay, like Dennis Cometti, very calm operator. Dennis is losing his, <laughs> his you know what, in the commentary box. Just before we get to, to, to what happened in the relay, you, you mentioned you've never felt so clear in the pool. If you could take yourself back to, to that moment, what, what did you have in that event that you could would have loved to bottle and be able to... Bring every time, which is impossible, obviously.
2: Yeah, and even though you know we had the drama with Thorpe being late, um, he sort of just got to the marshing area as we were walking out. So well, where, where was he? A, he was well. He was he wasn't celebrating from his 400. He was actually trying to get a suit on. Oh, He's got yeah. those big black suits, and he tore a couple. And he was on this last suit. So if he tore the next one, he was going to be swimming in this budget smugglers, right. which probably wouldn't have served them too well. But, um, yeah, so we, we, we didn't have a perfect kind of, I guess, lead up in the last hour. Um, the manager was saying, oh, Thorpey's running late. He's at that stage, there was the entire support staff, I think, helping him get the suit on. At the end, it was only Piney f- who swam with us in the heats and, um, calmly got that suit on. And if you watch the replay, Thorpey kind of just, uh, waddles out just behind us at a, <laughs> with a towel around his neck and, and, and runners. That's it. Um, <laughs> but, uh. Yeah. So the, the preparation wasn't perfect. And, um, I think it's, it's another great lesson in in sport that you don't have to have everything line up for you to perform at, at the best level. You know, the, the thing that kind of got reinforced for me was it was a perfect balance of being aroused, but then also being in, being relaxed about what was happening. You know, I sort of let, let the occasion just take, take, the, take me wherever. And, um, I, I knew that I was swimming well the day before I, I was, you know, pushing some really great times. So it almost, you know, not trying to force it. It's, it's a such a typical kind of a cliche that, mm. you know, whenever we want something so bad, we tend to try it too hard and, and it affects our performance. And for whatever reason, I've always had an ability to, in the relays to find that good, good balance where I, you know, obviously tried my heart out, but without sort of affecting the the outcome of the race so um yeah that was that was one where it just i think i it's almost like i woke up on the in the second lap and i was you know a body length in front and i just had a couple different cues that i had to focus on and you wait for the 50 meter point underneath uh, underneath the water and for me i switched to a dolphin kick at that point and um yeah i was i knew that i had it so it was a good swim (laughs) but look at michael klim powering down to the
1: wall Chris Feidler in next for the Australians. Check that time: forty-eight point one eight. Michael Klim has just broken the world record: forty-eight point one eight. The world record is forty-eight point two one. What a magnificent start for the Australians!
0: Well, it was a world record swim, but then you've you've got to watch your three mates swim another three hundred meters. So, what's it like? What's your memories of? Um, And it came down to Thorpe and Hall. Hall and Thorpe, Mm. Dennis's amazing (laughs) call. Now
1: he's digging deep. The crowd is roaring. Their hero is coming on. Will it be a fairy tale? Thorpe is coming out after Hall. They're matching strokes
0: now. Thorpe on terms with Hall. They've got about 15 metres to swim. What's it like? What's your memories of sitting there watching Thorpe when, ostensibly, now you can do nothing about it?
2: Yeah, yeah it was it was bizarre because it you know the the crowd actually at that point we had they extended the the grandstand a little bit so there was a temporary kind of structure mm. that it you was know, metal and whatever it was but it sort of vibrated and it was created this different sound so by that by the sta- by the time sort of ashley dove, dove in everyone was on, was on their feet like the whole stadium was on their feet so it was back it was back and forth and um and it, we were sort of obviously standing from behind the blocks, so we couldn't. We would sort of look up at the at the monitor, or the screen, to see how we were travelling. And when when Gary turned with 50 to go, Thorpey was a good body length behind him, and we knew it was going to take a you know a superhuman effort <laughs> to go over, over the top of him. But i um, looking at the screen. I just noticed, obviously, in swimming, it's really important to keep your tempo and keep your rating up. And uh, I just noticed, with about 25 to go, that Gary was starting to slow his rating down, which means that he was starting to fatigue. And and Thorpe had just turned on that massive six six-speed kick, and <laughs> um, the amount of ground he was able to make up in, in 15 meters was just extraordinary. So, and we were like picking over the the edge of the pool to see who touched first. We didn't. You can normally tell even if it's 0.12 of a second. you uh, didn't have to look up at the scoreboard.
1: Thorpe the hole. Thorpe goes in. Australia win! New world record! We have just, the Australians have just broken the American stranglehold on this race! The roof is lifting off this stadium!
2: I don't know, I mean obviously our our celebrations speak for themselves, we just went off and um, Well tell us about know, the
0: celebration. so you famously posed with guitars after Gary said they were going to smash you like... Guitar. So, was that a pre-arranged plan in case you got up, or how how did that? Because again, we talk about a famous race, but that's <laughs> that's the celebration from any Olympic performance that sticks in my mind. And Thorpe yeah. looked real awkward with the old guitar <laughs> in arm He didn't look relaxed, <laughs> Thorpey.
2: Yeah. Well, look, it was something that uh, both Thorpey and fights kind of whispered behind behind me, and we just end up doing it. But it was uh, certainly wasn't pre-rehearsed, right. or we didn't think about it. But yeah, um it just. It just came out and look I'm I'm glad we did because you know we get to talk about it now yeah. but it's uh and look I, I copped a bit of slack from a few people even within within sport that uh you know your celebration takes away from from ah. the event itself and I'm like I can't help it, mate. That's how you know these, these emotions. where you know, are going all over the place, and you you, you do things that obviously just to express yourself. So, um, but yeah, famously, it was uh, it was it was a good one.
0: <laughs> oh, mate, sport. You're in the entertainment business, and it's like <laughs> it is. It's entertainment. So, so you, then you go and uh, gold in the 200 freestyle relay as well.
2: Yeah, I, I wasn't going for a personal best or anything. I just wanted to get the guys a pretty good lead. It's just the best feeling I've ever had, and um, I just got to compose myself and try and get back in the race in the next
0: three days. The 100 doesn't work out for you, but we, yep. we we come back, because I think the the great thing about this show, Clemmie, is people begin to understand that there's ups being an athlete, but there's mm. downs being an athlete. So you, you've Absolutely, got two yeah. medals, two gold medals mm. in your bag, it, it hasn't worked out for you in the 100, and then you're trying to reset yourself for your pet event.
2: Yep. Yeah, yeah. And look, I had a sh- had a pretty awful heat swim. and got through that. I had a reasonable semi final, and I previously in '98 I sort of pulled myself out of qualifying fourth into winning the world championships and um, being a world record holder then at the time as well. So I I kind of had I had a, had the belief that I could do it, and I knew that I definitely. It was missing a little bit of kind of nervous energy and, uh, you know, emotionally I've had these huge highs and there is, it's, you know, it, it's quite common and it happened to Susie O'Neill when she mm. spoke about how, you know, for her, that sort of that rollercoaster, emotional rollercoaster of the Olympics took toll on her as well. And um But I think, yeah, I think I did everything possible to get, get something out of myself. I dropped 0.4 from the... From the semi to the final, and was you know was was less than point one of a second away from gold, and I think I personally swam a, a perfect ninety meter race, but then someone dropped a piano on my hmm. on my back, and uh, and I, I distinctly remember when that happened, and you can either sort of grit your teeth and try and fight it, and I tried to sort of just keep keep the flow into the wall, but I was losing so much speed, and Lars last rolander who's um is a great guy actually we've we were mates and we competed against each other for years and um uh, you know he was uh, gracious in, in in victory as well Um, But uh, we both Skippy and and myself walked up to him And I said, you've spoiled the biggest party in Australia (laughs) You've just spoiled it (laughs) Michael
1: Klim is out, Frolander is coming on Klim and Frolander Frolander in lane 6 Now Hugel finishing strongly Klim still in front Frolander the danger Klim weakening Frolander coming over the top Frolander in lane 6 May tip them out Frolander goes in won Australia
0: second and third. So I'd like yeah. to know how you view it. Like we had Grant Hackett on this show a couple of years ago, Klimmy, and I don't understand it because I'm not an elite athlete. And he talked about every race he didn't win was a failure, mm. and he used the word disgusted, Klimmy, which I found a very yeah. strong adjective yeah, for yeah. an Olympic silver medal. How do you view it? Talk me through that race where you are a red hot favourite.
2: Yeah. Look, I um. <laughs> I sort of came off a another disappointing race prior to that in 100 freestyle where um i ended up fourth and gary hall and alex popov and peter van den hugenband sort of uh they were in front of me um there was 0.06 between second and and fourth and wow. i ended up on the on the, the latter part Jeez. for me the upsetting thing is that knowing that your best could have won that um you know unfortunately lars Oh, fortunately, didn't break the world record at the time, and and it was a little bit off it. So that's the thing that sort of uh, irritates me to this day. That knowing so, that, so it still sits with you now. Yeah. Well, look, I you know I've learned to deal with it, but it's certainly I think as an athlete you. You know the ones that got away. Where if you swam your best, you would have you would have got those races. And unfortunately, at that level, there is so little you know so little between us. And um, yeah, you you'd learn to deal with it, but it's certainly a sore spot.
0: <laughs> that is the end of Michael Klim Part A. Plenty more to come in Part B.